One common symptom of anxiety is being mentally scattered, jumping from one place to another constantly. When we panic, we scan for threats, and it causes our loop of attention to get shorter and shorter. Not too long ago, I was with a young boy who has some kind of autism or some kind of um, you know, mental diagnosis. And this is a boy who's been through a lot of trauma. And what I saw on his face was someone who had a lot of unprocessed trauma. And I wonder how much of what we call mental illness, of what we call, you know, autism and these different things, is unprocessed mental trauma. That to me, what it looked like, and I'm no doctor, but to me, what it looked like is that all his unprocessed trauma caused his brain to scan for threats every few seconds. So every few seconds he would essentially reset, the loop would start over. Because he had been in so many traumatic situations where he was so unsafe that, you know, that his brain sort of determined, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. So I'm always going to be scanning for threats. And as his brain is always scanning for threats, the loop is always starting over and it looks like he can't pay attention to anything. When we panic, we scan for threats, and it causes the loop of our attention to get shorter and shorter. Now imagine for a second a culture who intentionally practiced this. Imagine a people who, even when having a great day, deliberately chose to enter that state of mind. Social media is like a virtual high school reunion. Sure, it's not impossible to think deeply and to be creative and to enjoy the small, beautiful things in our everyday life at a high school reunion. It's not impossible, but it's not exactly ideal either. This may sound corny, but if we had all the ingredients for more peace and for a more joy-filled and deeply meaningful life, if we had all the pieces sitting in front of us on a table, would we even notice them? Or would we just disregard them as something outdated? In the Screwtape Letters, Lewis wrote, Modern man doesn't think of doctrines as primarily true or false, but rather as academic or outworn. If you want to convince a modern man of something, don't waste your time trying to make him think it's true. Instead, try to make him think it's strong or stark, that it's the philosophy of the future. That's the sort of thing he cares about. Since the podcast I did on the Amish and the pop star, I've been thinking a lot about what is our ideal relationship to modernity, to the way that the world is now. Before I go any further, the context for all this is that, as you probably already know, I've dealt with a lot of depression and a lot of anxiety. And I want to set that as the context for everything I'm about to talk about, because I noticed that there were things which were wrong within me. There were things that were off that were increasing my amount of unhappiness in, in life, and that it was worse inside my head than it was in my actual life. And I continue to try to figure out how to square those things. So anyway, yeah, so what is our ideal relationship to modern life? There's a guy who worked at Hallmark creating cards for about 30 years named Gordon McKenzie, who wrote a book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. And his basic idea was that, at least for him, the ideal place to be was far enough away from the corporate world, from the sort of mechanized way of modern life, that he could still be creative, but close enough to the structures of the world that he could use their power. 
that basically, you know, a corporation has immense power, immense reach, immense influence, and, uh, you know, and there's some value to that, but that you want to be far enough away that you still have some of your individuality, that you still have some creativity, and if you are too close to the structure, if you're too close to the sort of corporate mindset, then your creativity, your individualism will die, and I see this a lot in today's world where we're everything we participate in is very global, right? Facebook is very global, Amazon is very global, our you know, interaction with things that are completely global is very much on the rise. And so our sense that we are an individual is shrinking. And I think about how during the virus certain people were said to be non essential. And I'm not saying that that was deliberate, but how odd for a person's society to basically straight up tell them that all you do every day, that your work all day every day, is not essential to us. There are ways in which modern life is skewed differently than the past that will increase our feeling of non-existence, our feeling of being a non-entity. And we must at least orbit the structures of our society, in my opinion, to use the good parts, to use the power of what they have to offer, such as being able to use the internet to share these ideas with you. But that we need to be far enough away that we remember who we are. Think about showing the power of Google to someone a hundred years ago. Think about how amazed by it they would be. Think about all the ways that they would consider how Google, how the power of Google would make something they wanted to do faster and easier. But that for us today, rather than using it to further something individual to us, rather than occasionally tapping into its power to help us, we lose ourselves in it, hoping to find that somewhere in its immense depth, and its immense power, some synthetic replacement for what it felt like to be an individual. Eric Weinstein once said, The idea that good ideas beat bad ideas is untrue. Fit ideas beat unfit ideas. This is a really interesting concept. The concept that the best idea does not always win. The idea that wins in our culture is the one that fits best. You may see this based on who wins a political primary versus who you think was best that the person who wins is the person who fits the situation best, not necessarily the best person. The philosophy running in our culture today is one that we humans are just computers in meat suits. This is why certain people talk about AI the way they do. They talk about it as if it's the future of the human race. If a human is just a computer, then a faster computer is by necessity a better human. The reductionism the emptiness, the materialism of the modern way of seeing the world is dying because it's not true. But for the past several decades, it has been such a fit idea that the fact that it isn't a good idea doesn't matter. That it fit what we wanted to accomplish so well that we overlooked that it was not a good idea. I heard something the other day that, you know, when a doctor works on a patient, he needs to think of that patient as essentially a series of 
you know, ligaments and bones and stuff. He can't really think of his patient that he's operating on as having an eternal soul. Now, he may even think that the patient does have an eternal soul, but for his hand not to shake, for him to really accomplish the thing he needs to accomplish, he needs to reduce the person he's working on down to a series of things that he can understand. And that's what we've done with our entire world. That's what the West has done with everything. It's reduced it to something that we can manipulate. And we can manipulate it once we reduce it. So it works. It is a fit idea. But as we get the wealth, as we get all of the things that can be got from manipulating everything, from reducing everything, only now are we starting to see the true cost of that. We must reject the notion that we are mere computers running programs, that we can be set at any pace our program has set. A guy named Burn Power in an interview recently said that today's people don't live in time, we live against time. That everything about the way the world is set up in the modern West is to live against time. That almost no moment throughout our day do we live in the slow, true flow of time. The problem with this is that goodness, by nature, is slow. I don't know why that is, and I'm not saying it should be that way, but just to the best of my ability to understand, it just seems to be the way it is. That goodness is slow. Consider the difference between these two things. The first person engages in a lot of one-night stands. They do a lot of partying. They do a lot of sleeping with strangers they don't care about. This person is very likely to talk about their one-night stands, to talk about their life of partying, to talk about just how blackout drunk they got and how little they care about it themselves or anyone else. Now think about someone who has a beautiful, intimate life, who's married. Think about a married couple with a really wonderful intimate life. That person will never tell you about it. They won't even get close to telling you about it. Why is that? Why does the one person want to tell you, need to tell you, and the other person absolutely refuse to tell you? Because to the married person, attention of others would just pollute the intrinsic beauty, the intrinsic goodness of the real thing they're experiencing. That the attention of outside people would do nothing but denigrate that. But to the partier, the validation of others is necessary. It's needed. That they need the attention of others. They need the validation to prop up the decisions. Because there's so little intrinsic goodness, there's so little love that they need attention to supplement where there is no love, where there is no true meaning. How many real things do we rush past as we rush our way to an imitation? Never mistake something loud for something true. What are those few things in life that are so good that you don't even need to talk about them? You don't even want to talk about them. What are those few quiet, small, beautiful things that to have any attention brought to them would be nothing but a negative? What are those things so beautiful, so good, that they do not 
need any supplementing of the approval of people on the outside. What are those few beautiful things of intrinsic value? When we don't live in time, when we live against the flow of time, we become numb. The more you try to outrun the pace of reality, the more numb you will feel because you are not a computer. And the more you act like a computer, the less you will feel like a human. Now is fast, but goodness is slow. I'm going to read a piece from the John Eldridge book, Get Your Life Back. Quote, we go from a tender conversation with our eight-year-old who's anxious about going to school to an angry phone call with our insurance company as we drive to work, which is followed by a quick chat with our sister needing a decision about our aging parents' memory care unit. Then it's straight into a series of business meetings during which we multitask by trying to bang out another email, firing some employee, interviewing some other employee, making dinner reservations for our spouse's birthday, fitting in a conversation with our boss because we can't say no, showing up late and haggard for dinner. And we wonder why we have such a hard time finding God and receiving more of him. The EMT who leaves the scene of a terrible accident races to get to his Bible study group but wonders afterwards why he couldn't feel anything there. The school teacher who comes home exhausted from a day of hurting riotous children tries to be present for her own child but can't seem to find the right gear to do so. Do you allow a grace of transition in your life or do you simply blast from one thing to the next thing? My sons have recently taken up triathlons where athletes compete in a multidiscipline race typically composed of running, cycling, and swimming. They explained to me the margin of victory is often made up in the transitions. When the athlete leaves the water and needs to get to their bike, they often strip off a wetsuit and put on bike shoes and a helmet and get pedaling as quickly as possible. The goal is to do all this while still running stripping as they leave the water, etc. This is exactly the attitude that we have taken to the events of our lives. The problem is, in a triathlon, transitions are meant to be whittled down to nothing. But that's not true for those gracious spaces between the events of human living. I wonder how many situations we would call disappointments or setbacks that might actually be the loving hand of God, trying to slow us down for the sake of our own souls, that we might receive Him. In today's world, we live against the natural flow of time, and we feel numb. So the ways that I've been experimenting with trying to step away from this feeling of numbness to try to actually experience the beauty of my actual life one of the ways is I've completely got off social media. I asked my wife to post the podcast for me, so, you know, when you see these uh, posts go up, my, my wife has logged in as me and, and posts this stuff there. But I have had so many more ideas, and this sounds silly, but I just have had so much more freedom and so much more, uh, you know, creativity or whatever, even in small ways, since getting off social media. You know, it's like being in a hamster wheel. It's like being at a high school reunion. It's not impossible to be creative at a high school reunion. It's not impossible 
to think deeply, but it is not at all ideal to the human mind. Another way is I've tried to be off my phone when I get home from work. When I'm done at work, I'm just pretty much done on my phone, and I try to, you know, just be with my wife and just try to really be there. And even if we watch TV and, you know, stuff like that, to do that together and to, uh, you know, to replace a video game with a book. And again, this sounds so corny. It sounds so soapboxy. I didn't do this. Uh, <laughs> I just did this because I wasn't happy. I, I couldn't feel happiness. I knew that there was some sitting around me that I couldn't experience. I knew I couldn't see it. I had no intuition to see what was right in front of me. So trying to step away from the speed of what is modern to see if that changed my experience of daily life. You know, one of the things I love about getting older is that I worry less about needing to be somewhere else, needing to be someone else. Something that pretty much constantly consumed my thoughts as a younger person, as a single person, was that I should be somewhere else, I should be someone else. And since I've been married, and as we slowly begin to create our own little universe, the less of a pull that that has on me, the more happy I am to just be here, to live where I live, to have the job that I have, to have the life that I have, the more I can see the good in it. And I only mention this because usually when people talk about getting older, they do it in almost exclusively negative terms. And that's because if something has gotten better, you often forget how it used to be worse. Because if we used to have ten things poking you and then eight of them went away, what are you really going to think about but the two things still poking you? You're not going to think about the eight that went away. And so there is a lot of peace that can come with getting older, and I think that's a beautiful thing and something to uh, look at. The last thing I want to... Uh, talk about is the way that enjoyment is a symbol of trust. As I mentioned several times already, I deal a lot with anxiety and I deal a lot with depression. And so I've tried to think about what is the opposite of anxiety. The opposite of anxiety is trust. And if I wanted to have a little bit more trust, if I wanted to practice it, what would I do? What would I do now? So for me, the way for me to practice trust in God is to enjoy the moment. That throughout each day, probably a hundred times, my brain will start reeling with some kind of fear. And over and over again, I say, God, I choose to enjoy this moment as a symbol of trust in you, as a symbol that you will handle the things which I am scared of the things which are worrying me, as a symbol of trying to leave a state of constant panic. I will enjoy this right here. And God, as I enjoy this moment right in front of me, may you take that as worship. May you take that as me doing the best I know how, at least right now, to show some kind of gratitude for this moment. That may my enjoyment be seen as gratitude. May my enjoyment of the present be seen as a symbol of trust. Lewis wrote this of the present. 
For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment, and only of it, humans have an experience which is analogous to the experience which God has of reality as a whole. In it alone freedom and actuality are offered to them. That only in the present, only if we're right here, right now, are we connected to eternity. That the past brings regret, and that the future brings worry. But that trust right here, right now, is the fullest and most beautiful experience of life. Now is fast, but good is slow. Is there something good laying around your life that you haven't been able to see as good? Is there some pocket of joy, of peace, of wonder that is already in your life that you are so out of tune with that you don't know it's there? That if you saw it, you wouldn't know what you were looking at? May we slow down in the ways we can to the actual flow of time. Another thing this book talked about was the way that between miracles, Jesus would walk for three or four days with his disciples and, you know, just eat and probably make, you know, bonfires or whatever and, and just hang out with them. And that when we think of him, we only think of the headlines. We don't think of all the downtime that he spent with the people that he loved, that loved him. And that we cannot cut those moments, every one of those moments, out of our life without there being a cost. Scripture says that he speaks in a still, small voice. May we never mistake what is loud for what is true. And may we never mistake what is efficient for what is good. I love you guys.